Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 18th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey, one that may be very different than you'd expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in their journey and embrace we're more similar than not. I am in awe of my guest today, who started traveling the world as an 18th month old. Sense of adventure is in his DNA, no question. Exploring the world as a youth shaped him, his values and mission. In 2013, he became the first openly LGBT and fifth youngest person to climb Mount Everest and the Seven Summits, the highest mountain on each continent, an extraordinary feat at any age, and doing so to raise awareness and funds for youth suicide prevention and crisis intervention. You probably won't be shocked to hear that since he's had numerous prize-winning finishes in ultra marathons and obstacle course races, Oh, let me not overlook six Ironman triathlons and dozens of marathons, open water swims, hikes, climbs, and more. And my friend, who's not yet 30, is also a thriving entrepreneur of an award-winning cold brew coffee company, which we'll learn more about. We are in for a treat to hear firsthand about mental toughness in extreme adversity and the courage to dream big and make those dreams reality. I am beyond thrilled to introduce Global Citizen and Founder and Chief Exploration Officer of Explorer Cold Brew, Kaysen Crane. Kaysen, thank you for joining me on Our Voices. Thank you, Molly. I'm so excited to be here and to chat. Um, I, I think this is awesome, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait to, uh, to uh, chat with you about my, my background and my story. I am thrilled for, uh, for my listeners and really for me to hear this, because yours is a larger-than-life story. Um, so I'm so grateful for you being willing to uh, share your journey with listeners. It, it, yeah, it's no problem. I mean, luckily, I'm, I'm like a pretty extroverted person. So talking is, uh, comes very naturally to me. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess when I think about sharing my story, I think, it, you know, the first thing that immediately springs to mind for me is, um, you know, before we even get into anything is how, like, how, how many advantages I had that other people don't have and haven't or, or, you know, won't have. And I just, you know, right off the bat, want to say that, you know, recognizing that privilege and appreciating it and trying to make the most of the opportunities that were afforded to me has been a, um, you know, a constant uh, objective of, of mine throughout my life to, to try and make sure I'm really maximizing every opportunity, recognizing how lucky I am to have those opportunities. Um, and so I think I just wanted to, you know, say that right off the bat, because I think, um, you know, I, I believe that many other people approach their lives the same way, but I'm sure there are some that maybe don't recognize that they have as many advantages as they do. 
Yeah, that's a really great one. I appreciate you're starting us out and I'll just label it as having gratitude, you know, and in your case, you feel like you had a lot of head start. I think in some ways folks can sometimes see disadvantages and feel sorry for themselves. I've seen people also look at disadvantages and realize, you know what, that helped me be a better me. Um, and so Casey, and that's something at a, at a younger age, you can tell you had, and that's a real advantage for you. So I appreciate your calling that out. Yeah, no. And I, I think the, on the, it's interesting in terms of like turning lemons into lemonade. I, I definitely feel like everyone's lives have, there's challenges in everyone's lives. I don't think there's a single person in the world that doesn't have some challenge. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone should really be in the business of trying to compare, well, my challenges are so much greater than yours, you know, on a like individual level, but, you know, obviously on a societal level, there's, there's, there's inequity, but um, I think having, you recognizing the personal challenges in one's life. And, and anyway, I'll get to that more later. Cause I definitely feel like there were a couple that were particularly formative for me, but bef- like before even that, like, I mean, my, the number one thing I think of after that is, is my family. Um, I, I grew up in this crazy family. Um, Molly, I can't wait. I hope you get to meet all of them at some point. Uh, but I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, and my two crazy parents instilled in all five of us a crazy uh, thirst for pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones uh, from truly the youngest possible age. And that pushing, you know, pushing oneself out of his or her comfort zone has, I mean, it, it manifested in our, in, you know, we, we were studying like five languages in as a, as a youth, you know, I was studying Chinese, Arabic, French, Latin. Okay. Maybe it was just four languages, but still that's a lot <laughs> to be studying in like sixth grade uh, at one time. And in addition to that, on the uh, physical side, you know, we were constantly, uh, you know, going from sport to sport, pushing ourselves physically, doing a half iron, my first half Ironman triathlon, I did when I was 12 years old. Um, and so it was like the, you know, th- there was never, <laughs> there was never a choice to say no. And I think I'm grateful to my parents for, uh, I guess, never giving us that no option, because even though there were moments when it was, you know, I, I in, in therapy now, I talk about <laughs> how I, I, I need to evolve a little bit beyond that. But in general, I think it really instilled a, a deep mental toughness in me and in my siblings. And I'm so grateful for that, um, even though there were some, <laughs> there were times when I definitely didn't want to be doing what we were doing. But well, okay, uh, he's in, pause for a moment. Lean a yeah. little bit into that as a child and just, and if you can recall, processing that, you know, how much of a pushback, traumatic, you know, what was it? Temper tantrum. Just tell us a little bit about how you handle that. Cause as the oldest, oh, the other kids are watching you. And I, I think that's a great, it's a fantastic point, Molly, because I was always cognizant that they were watching me. I think <laughs> I, I developed, uh, you know, more, a, a bit of a sort of moodiness, you know, in terms of ups and downs. Um, I would not, I wouldn't, I, I never felt like it was an option to, not do something to, to quote unquote quit. Uh, we were very much a no quitting family. And so the idea that, you know, I could choose not to do something and it would then, you know, that was, that was, that was quitting. Um, I think now I've evolved a little bit, as I was saying, that like, <laughs> I recognize that I can actually make choices and choose what I might prefer to do. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I think what that, 
the, the sort of negative side effect that manifested was, was, was moodiness. I would do it, but I would be uh, unhappy about it and would let that show. Um, and I think I've worked hard in the year since to try and um, <laughs> get over that moodiness. You know, I still have, I still obviously have moods. Um, but when I think about where that comes from, I think it, it's a, a sort of uh, unintended side effect of the uh, forcing me and my siblings to do every single thing, um, you know, push to do every single thing without any option to say no. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> tough love. And it's, you know, this is the subjective thing of parenting. It's just like, you know, you do what you think is right. And then, you know, we're not always sure. And I guess I'm wondering if, if the idea of pressure, you know, I, and I love quoting Billie Jean King, my idol of pressure is a privilege. Um, love that did you quote. Fe- yeah. Did you feel the insane pressure? Did you, I mean, how did, how did you think of that as a young person? I mean, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot to heap on mentally and physically. You know, I think it's really, really hard to say. I mean, one thing I, I, I get very um, wary of sort of deep memories because I think that memory is, uh, I think memories can, can shift honestly over time for everyone. Um, even in sort of the basic facts and so I'm particularly wary of sort of looking back and saying, yes, even when I was 12, 13, I recognized the, the, that this pressure was a privilege uh, because now I very much view that. And I have for, you know, probably the last 10 plus years of my life. But, you know, my honest answer is I don't know if I, I think that came with time. Um, if I'm going to be, if, if I'm being fully honest, I, I think it really came with time. And, and part of, um, I think the moment when it really resonated for me was actually after high school. Um, I graduated, well, I graduated from high school and, and high school itself, I guess after I graduated high school, I, I went off and I was very independent, but, but that, that, de- that desire for independence, I think was rooted in my family background as a, you know, as a, as a young kid. Um, and the, the, deeply um, sort of the deep pressure to do what we were doing, but also to compete with one another. Um, we were, a, we were and are a very competitive family in, in a, not in a um, overly aggressive way. I mean, we are so close. My brother, David and my sister, Bella come over for dinner almost every Sunday night to my, my fiance's apartment here in New York. Um, we're extremely close and get along very well. In fact, get along you know, extraordinarily well, considering the competitiveness. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, but I think I, I eventually over time, and, and I can talk more about, you know, what I did after high school, um, that I think that's where it fully resonated. Like, wow, I really have it, have an op, that this is really a, a, an opportunity and, and a privilege. Um, yeah. Before we get to the post, just in the high school, because it sounds like you were traveling around, was it fairly stable? You went to the same school? Um, you know, just, I'm just curious, um, what the, I, I sent myself away. Um, no, Molly, I, I, it's interesting. I, I had, you know, when you look back in your life and you're like, wow, like there are probably like 10 conversations that I can point to across my entire life where the course of my life took a turn, maybe not a, you know, 180 degree turn, but like, so you can feel that in that conversation, your life just shifted slightly. And I had one of those conversations with my sixth or seventh grade English teacher, Miss Pratt. 
um, actually, then she got married. So I think it was Mrs. Leonard after that, Miss Pratt uh, at my school in, in New Jersey. And she was my English teacher. And she said, Casey, you know, you're a really talented writer. Um, I, you know, I, I used to teach at this boarding school. It's a really great academic environment. It's, a, you know, the best of the best teachers and students from all over the world. They have a summer program just for writing. You should apply and, and do that program. And I did. I applied. I, I got into the program at Choate, uh, a fantastic school, uh, did the summer program. And when I was there, my roommate, so I guess this is the second of the a second of my 10 conversations in quick succession. My roommate was this kid, Alex, and he said to me, so when's your interview? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> what interview? He's like, well, don't you want to go here for high school? And it actually, up until that moment, hadn't occurred to me that that was something I could, I could even do. I mean, I thought of it as a summer program, which is what it was, but that I could potentially pursue this opportunity to apply to the school and, and go there for high school. And so the next day I went into the admissions office, asked for an interview. Uh, you know, ultimately I had to you know, do the whole application process, but I ended up applying, getting in and then going to Choate for high school. So I went away to boarding school and that was not my parents, literally neither, you know, neither my parents even knew. I don't think they knew really anyone that had gone to boarding school. They had Grew up, my dad grew up in the Midwest. My mom grew up in Southwest, rural Southwest Louisiana. Boarding school was not, I wasn't one of those kids who went to boarding school because his parents and his grandparents and his great grandparents all went to the same boarding school. That wasn't, that wasn't what happened. It, I went to them and, and pitched them on the idea of me, of them sending me away. <laughs> okay, where, how did that go? You know, I, as I, I think in a number, <laughs> I approached my mother first um, and my mother and I have always been extremely close. We're very similar uh, in a lot of ways. And I think she understood that part of it was the, I think for her, the academic excellence of this school and the opportunity to really um, push myself intellectually was a, was just a, a, a really compelling opportunity. But also I think she recognized that part of me deep down wanted some space Want to, especially, I think she saw, I mean, if you ask my parents, they'll tell you that they knew I was gay from when I was a baby, from when I was a kid. Um, and I didn't know that at that time in middle school, um, but I was starting to sense that there was something different around me and I felt like I wanted my own space. And that was not why I wanted to go to boarding school. That's not what I told anyone. That's not even what I believed for myself, but in retrospect, and I would have said this even, you know, even just a couple years later, in retrospect, it was, uh, I think, deep down, there was this desire to just get a little bit of space to figure out this thing, to figure out my sexuality, to understand who I am, be my own person. And so I, my mother was on board. And, and um, I think she spoke with my father to get him on board. And then I spoke with my father and he was um, and, and he was very supportive as well. And yeah, and they, they let me go. Wow, that's so exciting. So that's a very big deal because it's not a normative thing. So you're waved by by your four kids, brothers and sisters. Um, and I was that you're gone, gone. You, you're back. How often were you in contact? Were you just kind of launched like you're off in college? How um, how off on your own were you? I, you know, I, I visited, I came back home uh, maybe once every two to three months for a weekend or if it was a, like Christmas, you know, holiday break, uh, you know, that was a longer, 
longer break then. Uh, but we typically had, we had three, three trimesters in the course of the year, and each one had a long weekend where I would typically go home. Uh, and then there was spring break and, and holiday break. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't really leave campus much beyond that, to be honest. Uh, I was in Wallingford, Connecticut, <laughs> and I, I loved, I loved boarding school. I just, I loved how motivated all my classmates were. Um, and I, you know, my, my friends back home in, in New Jersey were also, you know, smart, interesting people, you know, interested in, in learning and all that. But it was just like a next level thing. I mean, I, it, you know, we would sit in our rooms. We had, well, we had mandatory study hours, so we had to do this. But, you know, everyone was so diligent. We were studying from 7.30 p.m. until lights out at, you know, well, it shifted over the course of the, of the four years. But studying so hard, not really because it was mandatory, but because just people were interested. They were curious. And I, I just loved it. I loved the, the friendships I made and, you know, not just with my classmates, but with my teachers. Even now, I still talk every month to my, one of my favorite teachers, my cross-country coach, um, and my, he was my advisor senior year. He taught me Shakespeare. I mean, my, you know, Ned, he's, he's coming to my wedding. Um, I still talk to him like every month. Um, and I, I just, I feel, I felt in that time, yeah, that's when I started to feel like, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have this opportunity because it, it was very clear, obviously. I mean, it, it's very clear when you're at boarding school that that is a very privileged environment. And that's really, I think, when I started to recognize the full extent of how lucky I was to have that opportunity and all these others. Um, and the other lucky thing I would say is like, you know, my coming out process, I was, so I, I mentioned like wanting some space to figure myself out. Didn't take that long, Molly. <laughs> um, <laughs> took only a couple months of being away at boarding school my freshman year to uh, come into my own as an openly gay uh, young man. And uh, it was sort of funny because I think, you know, people are still very much coming out. I just saw, you know, there was a, the first professional soccer player came out, um, you know, a few months ago, one of my dear friends, Carl, who, you know, became the first NFL player, first, you know, active NFL player to come out. People are still very much coming out and it's still, um, it's still a very real struggle for a lot of people. And I had this sort of odd experience where as soon as I realized that I was gay, which, you know, happened a couple months into my freshman year. I was so excited. I went and told all my friends and I remember my first kiss. Let's just say I didn't realize that uh, he might not view it the same way I did. And I may have gotten myself into a little bit of hot water uh, with my excitement, but it is sort of sweet because I felt comfortable literally going around and being like, Oh my God, you'll never believe what just happened to all of my, my guy friends in my dorm, which was, you know, guys only. And you sort of, you don't necessarily think that a dorm full of, you know, 150, 14 year old boys is going to be the most accepting environment. But for the most part, certainly not entirely, for the most part, part, part people were really accepting. I love how you were so in your own skin and just kudos to whatever in the universe just gave you permission to be you because you've seen it like for so many, that's really hard case. And so, wow, that's so awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I think I've thought it at a couple different moments over the course of my life, like, how did that happen? Like, how did I feel that comfortable? I mean, there was one other openly LGBT person 
at Choate at that time, a guy named Jack, who was a senior and I was a freshman that he was the only other one and he was very comfortable. And so, I mean, that, that's part of it, of course. Um, I, I'm sure part of it is knowing that my family would be accepting, just knowing deep down that it would, they, they would be accepting. Um, and, but I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it is sort of wild to me still. I like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I need to keep thinking about that and reflecting over the, over the coming years until I can ascertain an answer. Well, I think it's a special sauce. And, and I guess I might ask, you know, for the times you did face, um, I don't know if it's bias or um, people didn't feel accepting, maybe share a little bit about that and how you handled it. Because I do think that I think folks who don't have the natural sense of self-assuredness are quick to think, well, what are other people going to think? Which then is, well, how am I going to respond to that? And I'm just wondering if you had, you know, overt situations of, of uh, bias or, or made uncomfortable. Yeah, there, there were some, and I, I do, I, it's sort of looking back with rose colored glasses. I mean, there were definitely a few moments, I mean, ranging from, there was this, I mean, there, there were times when people called me, you know, the F word and um, in a, in a, in a non-compassionate way. <laughs> um, I mean, cause I, I think I'm a little bit more for, I think if that's, you know, people will say things as jokes that I think are uh, not intended to be malicious. That obviously happened, but there were also moments when people said things in a malicious manner. And I mean, one that springs to mind is my junior spring. Uh, I was, I was, a, I was a big runner. I was, I ended up being captain of the cross country and track teams. Um, and my junior spring, um, I was running track and I was at our championship meet and a kid from our, our like competitor or number one competitor school in that championship um, said something pretty nasty about, you know, not letting, you know, me using more, um, <laughs> more flowery language than that uh, beat the, the kid on his team. And it was so jarring to me because it was quite unusual. And I try, I mean, I was taken aback, of course, but I really tried to channel it productively and use it as fuel, fuel on the fire to get the adrenaline going, to get myself pumped up for the race. And I won the race. And that's sort of, I mean, you can't, you can't necessarily win the race every time, but even if I hadn't won the race, if I just, you know, just gotten a, you know, set a PR or push myself further or really, you know, push myself to the point of exhaustion, knowing I had really given it my all, I felt, I, I think just knowing that I had used that negative moment as fuel on the fire really helped me absorb it and not let it set me back. Um, it's, that's, that's amazing. Can, can you segue for the, I mean, I am not, a, you know, a sloth, I'm relatively fit, you know, but I am just in awe. So could you just take us for those of us, not at the elite level of athletic performance, you know, when you think about giving it your all, you know, you know, cause you, you're around us mere mortals all the time. So I'm just wondering, you know, how is it you, you find that you've been able to get to the highest performance levels and sustain it. You know, this is, I know it's not a one word answer, but I am curious how you, how you attribute your success. Answer. What's the three word answer? This is the family motto, Molly. It's all mental. 
Now, <laughs> just to take a step back, that I'm saying that a little bit tongue in cheek, obviously, because obviously, you know, with a physical endeavor, it's there is always going to be a physical component. But you know, the reality is, my, I, I well, thank you for what you've said. I, I appreciate it, but it's actually a misconception. I am not an elite level athlete, really. I'm, I'm actually not. You know, my fiance Fran, he is more of an elite level athlete than I am. He trains diligently every morning. He's getting up before the crack of dawn to do hours of exercise. He's so fit. You know, he, he's the sort of person who, you know, he didn't know how to, he was wanted to do triathlons, didn't know how to swim, took swim lessons, trained every day. Now he's a great swimmer and I've been swimming my whole life. And now he's, you know, as fast as I am soon to be faster. That is what I view, you know, that's like elite level athlete, the, the, you know, the commitment to the, I think what an actor would say is like the commitment to the craft. It's sort of the same thing. It's like the commitment to the craft in the sense of the training and the, the effort. And he watches what he eats. And like, that is how, and, and he's fast. He's faster than I am, significantly faster. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect because I compete in the same races as people like him, like my fiance and, and the many other folks or the other folks of that, you know, in our sports, I compete in the same races. The difference is I, you know, I don't go as fast. I finish them and I do fairly well because especially in endurance racing, it becomes increasingly mental. To use one brief example, we just competed in Ironman, Texas. It was so fun. Uh, great race. It was my sixth Ironman. Um, and I trained for it literally not at all. And that's not something I'm proud of. I really am like one of the things I'm working on. Yeah, I, I, I'm really trying to get myself to train more. It's, it's hard with my current, with my startup to um, fit everything in, but I'm trying to train more diligently. And I aspire to be more like my fiance in that sense. Um, and like my mother, I mean, like, like many other people who are like really diligent. I'm trying to become more like that in terms of training. But most people think about an Ironman, which is a 2.4 mile swim followed by 112 mile bike followed by a 26.2 mile marathon uh, run. And they think of the run, just to use one very, again, very, very narrow example. They think about that run, the marathon run, and they think that they actually have to run that whole 26.2 miles. The reality is you just walk it. It's just about putting one foot in front of the other. And it's not like if you walk the marathon, you're going to be the last place finisher. Half of the people in the race are going to walk almost the entire thing. And so I think the, the moral of this story, as I just sort of bring it back to it's all mental, is the number one thing I found is that the, the biggest obstacle to people competing in the same sort of endurance races that I competed is their own lack of self-belief that they could do it because they don't think they're fit enough or they don't think they're trained enough or they don't think they could, you know, stick to it. It's really just, uh, you know, ultimately that's, I think the biggest obstacle. It helps to have a base level of fitness. It helps to train, but yeah, that that's where I think people most often um, like they, they can't even get to the start of the race because they don't believe they can finish it when actually they can. I love it. That is so empowering, folks. Are we listening to this? There's so much about our own mental state. And, you know, it's funny. I, I work with a lot of folks and sometimes, you know, they don't believe in themselves. I'm thinking, well, do you want people to be believing in you? Do you want people to be confident in you? And they look at me, yeah. And I'm like, well, gosh, it kind of starts with you. And that's exactly what you're saying is you've got to have that that will um, 
and you know, I I think some of that's parenting, but you know, may, it, a lot of it's got to be the case in case in DNA. You know, that is um, that self belief. You know, I've, I I don't have my own kids, but I I just think that one of the biggest gifts is you can empower your children to believe in themselves. Um, you know, and that's it's just a virtuous a cycle. You know, you do one thing, and you're like, oh wow, I didn't think I could do that, but I did it. And then you do the next thing that's a little bit harder, a little bit longer. You're like, oh wow. I can do this too. And I really, it's really a virtuous cycle. Um, yeah. So can you just share that, you know, you do these crazy, I mean, some really amazing things. So is it, I mean, do you think, is it hard? I mean, do you feel like it's super hard, a little bit hard, very hard. And then how do you, what are you saying to yourself when you're like, you know what, I really kind of want to stop or do you never feel like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh gosh. Um, so yes, it's still hard. And it's hard for anyone. It's hard for Fran, even though he's better trained and fitter than I am. It's hard for me. And it's hard for the people who are less fit than I am. It's, it's sort of equally hard in different ways. Um, I never, I really try never to say anything is easy. A 5K race, that's not easy compared to a marathon. They're both hard in different ways. Um, however, they're also both doable for the vast majority of, of people um, or, you know, for anyone with, with, you know, if they, some people might need a little bit of training, uh, but doable. I love saying things are doable. Um, in terms of, yes, they are hard. What, to your question of like, what do I, t- you know, there are definitely moments when I'm in a race uh, or taking on a challenge and I don't, I don't want to keep going <laughs> or I don't, I mean, I don't think I can keep going. Um, and those are similar, but slightly different. When I don't think I can keep going, that actually happens less just because as I was saying, like this virtuous cycle where I've now done in my life so many crazy hard things that I often just remind myself like, well, I'm in an Ironman now. It's probably going to take me somewhere between, you know, 11 and a half and 13 and a half hours. And uh, that's a really long time in, in one sense, but also I, you know, I've done 24 hour races nonstop, you know, where I've run a hundred miles at a time. That's harder than this. So I'll sort of compare in my brain to past experiences to give myself inspiration to keep going. Um, in terms of like not wanting to keep going, that, that's a really interesting one because that actually happens a lot. It, these, you know, these can be miserable. Like, it's not like you're in this you know, 13 hour Ironman thinking, oh my gosh, let me just smell the roses. I'm so comfortable. This is so nice. Uh, I wish it were like that. It's sometimes like that. But, you know, in this, in the case of this most recent Ironman, it was 95 degrees and you're biking 112 miles on an interstate with no shade whatsoever, baking in the sun. um, And you're on an interstate. So it's not even like there's like sights to see. It's just highway. Um, yeah, so there were, there were moments when I was like, Ooh, how to keep going. Uh, this is where I, this is what I'm talking about in therapy recently, Molly, uh, because the interesting thing is this is where the parenting comes back in, I think for, for me or the unique parenting that my, uh, that my mother and father were kind enough to bestow on us, which is quitting is just not an option. Um, like truly there's no, I would have to be injured to drop out of a race. And even then, like I did a, uh, I raced, I did an ultra marathon uh, in Northern England along Hadrian's Wall, the entire 
the entire uh, path of Patreon Swall, I think it was like 80 miles approximately. And I uh, got injured about 20 miles into the 80 miles. And I almost dropped out um, because my, it was a calf. I had clearly done something to my calf and I could definitely no longer run. I could barely walk. And I kept going and it ended up taking me uh, over 24 hours to finish the race, but I did. And I walked slowly the whole rest of the way. Um, so it, it, that is where I, I just have to credit some mix of my parent, my parents, maybe it's DNA. I don't know what it is, but I just, I cannot let myself quit. Um, yeah, I can't. <laughs> and this is, I'm just, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm like I said, I'm even I'm I'm too compared. <laughs> well, it's, it's listen, every there's vice virtue. So we'll get to the vice virtue part of things. So, um, so, you know, I don't even know how you decided to go to college, but you want to give us a quick rundown of academic life and then getting, you know, this sportsman's uh, adventuring life and your business. I'm so blown away that you've started this amazing enterprise. Thank you. So, you know, going away to boarding school, I guess, wasn't the last time that my parents had to uh, let me go off and do my own thing uh, or let me go off and do my own thing. Uh, I, I did apply to college when I was a senior in high school, along with my classmates, and I actually deferred my my entrance. So I applied to college. Obviously, academics were always incredibly important to my parents, to me. Um, but I did, for some reason, I think my dad worked in, in the UK for for like five years when I was uh, when I was growing up. And he got acquainted with this idea of a gap year. My, my mother was acquainted, you know, th- th- everyone just sort of, was familiar with this idea of a gap year. I'm not exactly sure how people first discovered it or how my mom first discovered it, but it was always this option of like, do you want to take a gap year, which is much more common in Europe than it is in the U S and a gap year was just being, being a year off between high school and college to take on some, you know, do something. My mother, the way she explained it to me was, you know, you just go in We're we're comfortable with anything you do as long as you go in with a clear goal in mind. And so my initial goal uh, was to become fluent in Arabic, which was the language I had continued studying through high school. So I went to the Middle East. I, I did a, a semester at the American University of Beirut uh, in Lebanon, studying exclusively studying Arabic. I did that for a full semester and uh, right after graduating high school. Had an amazing, amazing time. I mean, it was, it was a little bit more of a structured program, um, but then realized that uh, language schools are really not my forte. Uh, and that my goal of becoming fluent in Arabic was uh, not going to be achieved. And so, you know, I guess like one lesson there was my, my parents had always instilled in me this, this ability to sort of take an initial goal and uh, adjust the definition of success. Um, I think that's important because like there will always be goals that we set for ourselves that we won't meet. And it's important to set lofty goals, but also important to then adjust the definition of success, um, uh, you know, at, at certain points. So I, I adjust the definition of success to be, I wanted to immerse myself in the Middle East and feel really um, like I'd, I'd spent a year getting deeply familiar with it to be able to go into college uh, and to study the Middle East in college um, with a real, like, you know, you know, with real, uh, you know, ground, grounded experience in, in that part of the world. So I moved to Israel for the rest of the year for about nine months and uh, no, yeah, 10 months in Israel and uh, found an apartment on Craigslist, moved in with six 
Israelis that I had not met. Um, and I, had, I knew no one there. I, I, I'm not Jewish. So I, I think a lot of my Jewish friends had have family or friends um, in Israel. I did not. And that was honestly looking back the hardest thing I've ever done to, you know, as an 18 year old kid fly to into Tel Aviv and, you know, you know, take this uh, shared, shared bus to Jerusalem in the middle of the night and, and go walk up the seventh floor, walk up uh, on this, to this Craigslist apartment with these six strangers. That was hard. Um, and I'm really proud of myself for, for doing that. And, and I was lonely. I was really lonely. Uh, I had to make a whole set of friends and like sort of make a whole life from scratch with no family there. And, and again, I still had advantages. I, I was very lucky to obviously have my parents supporting me. I got an internship there um, that allowed me to work at a local nonprofit. Um, but it was really hard uh, and a great learning experience. Um, I was really, really lucky to have that opportunity. Um, and so that was the, my first gap year. Then I ended up taking a second gap year to do something completely different, uh, which was, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, climb the seven summits, which is the highest mountain on each continent. Um, it was this spark occurred to me. I was um, I had briefly rejoined my family to celebrate Christmas. And I was like, shoot, you know what? I really wish I really wish I had, I had carved out some time in this gap year to climb mountains. Cause I love climbing big mountains. I think for me, it's just the pinnacle of, you know, physical mental challenge, you know, to, to have this goal, to go on this long journey, you know, anywhere from a couple days to a week, to two weeks, to a month, to, you know, in Everest case, two full months of climbing, uh, climbing a mountain. I, I just love that challenge. And I had this thought, I was like, well, what if I took a second year and made this something, you know, that was not at all about myself. I had, lost a friend to suicide in high school, unfortunately. And that I had, con- you know, I've constantly been trying to find different ways to, to give back to that cause. I was volunteering for a uh, suicide prevention service in various different ways. You know, obviously, you know, I was active posting about it, uh, but I was like, wait, what if I did this as a way to raise awareness for suicide prevention and to leverage the fact that I could be this first LGBT person to, to highlight that young LGBT kids are significantly more likely than their straight peers to attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's what I did. I, I pitched my parents on the idea again, and they, there's a little bit of reluctance, but they agreed and recognized the significance of the, the cause. And, um, and I, I was, that's, I mean, I, by that point, I had definitely recognized how lucky I was to have these opportunities. Cause that's, you know, getting to climb the seven summits at age 18 and 19, that's, that is like, very, very few people get that opportunity, especially at that age. Uh, I can't, I don't, I mean, there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother episode on just planning and doing that and, and what it takes. And I can only imagine the the amount of team, you know, collective success in, in potentially life and death situations, not to mention the individual, you know, oh, yeah. Stamina. The team is the, the it, it's all about the team. I never really understand solo climbers because, the team is both, it's, it can be the most, it can be challenging. You know, teams aren't, as you know, like, as you, like teams don't necessarily always get along. They don't necessarily always agree. And when you're in the mountains in those life and death moments, like that is just all magnified. Um, but I, I think you're right there. Oh gosh, there's so many stories. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, but I, I was just so lucky to have that opportunity. Um, 
And I raised $135,000 for suicide prevention uh, for the Trevor Project, um, all of which went to support their life-saving work, which was really, I, I, I was really proud of that as well. That was harder than the mountains. Um, I discovered that fundraising for a cause can be, can be a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, you know, I, I, I think of these, you know, you're not even 20 yet. These kinds of experiences set you up so well for getting into business, you know, working with people, setting high goals, you know, so I, I you know, I don't want to fast forward. I mean, there's the college part, just take us through the college part. And then I'm really keen on how you, how you're applying these early lessons into your business. Well, you know, it's, it's in, like a college was fantastic. I, I studied very hard, worked, worked hard. Um, and uh, studied history, studied the Middle East as I had planned. Um, but then really, I mean, I, I think it's something really fast forwarding. I think I didn't get a chance to, it was just a very different, it was sort of a detour um, and a, a very deeply appreciated detour where I met some of my now, you know, lifelong best friends. But I wasn't exactly applying my climbing lessons in college. I have been very much applying them since I started my, my own, my, my business last year. Um, I had been after college, I worked as a consultant at Bain and company for three and a half years. But then when the pandemic hit, I, I just felt like, I felt like I wanted once again to like try and make lemonade, you know, out of, out of lemons and try and find a silver lining using this obviously incredibly tragic challenged environment to explore a new passion or a new hobby. Uh, and, and, you know, I was stuck in a little apartment in New York with my fiance. Um, and I was like, I, I, I really needed a new hobby. <laughs> my therapist was like, please get a new hobby case. Uh, and so naturally the hobby I chose was starting a business. Um, and so I started sort of tinkering, exploring the ideas before I formally left Bain. Uh, and then, you know, I, I discovered pretty serendipitously that there was this opening in, in the in the coffee market uh, that was that resonated with me very deeply, which was you know cold brew and iced coffee are the most quickly growing set, you know coffee beverage, but they're very highly caffeinated, and I'm a little bit more caffeine sensitive, and I just I was just sort of blown away. How can people not choose their caffeine level uh, in their coffee, especially with their cold brew or iced coffee? And so I had this idea, like, what if I just made it, you know, a premium organic fair trade cold brew product that had four caffeine levels. So people could choose, you know, maybe they want a decaf cold brew because it tastes amazing. It's zero calories. It's healthy. It's got antioxidants, it's got all these amazing things, um, but without the caffeine, or maybe, you know, you're in the middle of a race or you're pulling an all nighter for work and you need an extra calf um, or you need it for your night shift. It's super popular uh, amongst, you know, our healthcare workers. Um, as they, you know, work really, really hard uh, in this challenging time through their, you know, through their night shifts, for example. And I was like, why can't, you know, let's, I, I want to make a product that runs that full gamut. And so I, I started the business, I started working on it, brought the product to market super quickly. And, uh, you know, and, and, and people it really, it's resonated with people. We, we launched almost exactly a year ago. It was our one year anniversary of our first sale last week. Wow. And um, it has been, it's been so many ups and downs, but being able to, again, adjust that definition of success has come in handy because, you know, the, the, not, not every month is going to be, you know, it's going to hit the revenue target that you'd set, you know, not every 
Not every product is going to hit perfectly. Not every review is a five-star review. You know, you know, sometimes people are nasty. <laughs> Thankfully, the vast majority of our reviews are extraordinarily positive. But I have to say, you know, I take everything personally. And when we got, when we get something that's not a five-star review, like it's sort of, it's a little bit like a sucker punch, you know, but, but being able to sort of adapt and get over that and recognize that people are humans. Right. And and we got a one-star review the other day and, and I reached out to the guy and, and, you know, the reality was it wasn't even about our product. It was that USPS had lost his package. That's not even really on us. But of course, I take ownership, you know, and I reached out. We, we, we addressed it for him. We, we overnighted him another package. But people, um, I think the, the moral of what I'm trying to say is I think what I've tried to be, get, be better at, and, 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 and this is something that I think you are a true master at, is being able to listen to people and not just listen to what they're saying, the words they're saying, but to listen and understand why they're saying what they're saying what's underlying it. And I think that's come in, in, that's come to be very useful for me as, as an entrepreneur, working with my vendors, working with my customers, working with my team, and, you know, just in my life in general, with my friends and my family, trying to just listen to people deeply, deeply listen. Uh, Such wisdom. And if I could just transport that to people of all ages, case and snap my fingers, I would do it because I think you're absolutely right that, um, to be in good relationship with ourselves means that we can really open our hearts and our minds to the other. And then just by that very act, right, it sets up um, lots of goodness, lots of goodness. You know, there's, I can see all the challenges. You're clearly a problem solver. What do you love most about, you know, being an entrepreneur, starting your own business? Oh gosh. I mean, there are so many things I love. I think the number one thing for me is the reason I started a, a, a beverage product was I loved having a tangible, a tangible good, you know, that people could try. And, and I love to see someone's reaction when they try our cold brew for the first time, whether it's written in a review or whether it's a video that they send in or whether it's a friend or family or an acquaintance that, you know, at a pop-up that trying, I just, I love seeing the joy we can bring to people, especially, you know, on, we're the only decaf cold brew um, out there, the only decaf cold brew concentrate and seeing how people who are decaf drinkers have been looking for that and they find us and they're so happy to have this little problem in their life or this little thing that makes their life just a smidge better. I'm like, I'm beaming right now because that's what makes me so happy. But from a business perspective, the other thing that I love is I love having, and I love setting the vision. I love like having the vision, setting the vision and, um, you know, working with my incredible team. I, I like my team is amazing and working with them to make that vision a reality, but, but being able to like say, this is what I want to, to exist in the world and then working with them to make that happen. Oh, I love that. You're the ultimate creator. Okay, let's make sure listeners know, how can they uh, find out more and try out this amazing brew that you have? Thank you. Well, they just go to explorercoldbrew.com, Explorer Cold Brew, and it's all e-commerce. So we ship free nationwide. You can also find us on Amazon. Um, just search Explorer Cold Brew. Um, yeah, lots of ways. Yeah. And you can enjoy delicious cold brew at home. Yeah. yeah whichever yeah, yeah. caffeine level you choose. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Wow, we are working on time. So I'm going to segue to our little part of the show. Let's go through a 
Say it skillfully challenge you have, Kaysen. Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm so glad we're getting to this because, Molly, one thing that I really struggle with is I'm not somebody who ever bails or flakes. And I have friends uh, who, who do. And I don't know how to ever really talk with them about this, like at a, you know, in, in general or in specific instances where they bailed. And there've been some pretty, pretty dramatic examples of this, but just in general, like how can I, I, I really just struggle with that. It, it, it upsets me quite a lot. How do I approach this or tackle this with my friends? Yes. Uh, I love that you bring this up. This is something that I share, maybe not to the same degree. As listeners know, it always starts first with ourselves. So I would just say, hey, let's, uh, give ourselves permission to not worry about the other person, but rather what's going on for Kaysen. So if someone's bailing, like, what is it about it? How is it affecting you? Okay. Answer that. If someone's bailing, how, how's it affecting me? I mean, I think, honestly, I think part of it is my own ego, right? Is I feel like they don't value me enough. And I'm trying to work on that part of <laughs> yet another thing I'm working on in therapy. Um, <laughs> No, but I think, yeah, I, I think I take it personally when I maybe should not. Great insight. That's great insight. So we're not making ourselves bad or wrong. Self-awareness is attribute of the most successful people and you have to track your self-compassion or you drive yourself crazy. And so it could be an ego thing. And it may be also, is that what that person really wants? They're really trying to like ruin my life. Uh, are they trying to be mean to me? And if they are, that's a different I think that that's an absolute legit thing to work with. I think that's different. So part of it is just making sure that you're not creating information, creating a situation from something, creating meaning that's not there. Okay. So you take an exhale and say, okay, is it about me or not? You know, really, Kason, as far as I can tell, you're doing super fine, right? So <laughs> whatever yeah. other people do, you're, you are good. So that might be in service to the other person. And if someone's bailing, you know, and there's ramifications because they're not appreciating that, you know, here's a simple thing. You said you're coming to dinner. You didn't. And, you know, we've now paid for food for more people. And, mm -hmm. you know, it may be something that you couldn't control. That but, has happened. Right. So that, <laughs> so that's just saying, hey, so I think assuming positive intent. So you get in good relationship with yourself. You know, being angry or hostile or annoyed is not a good way to, to connect, connect with someone. But then, okay. Um what's going on for them. Let me put myself in their shoes, assume positive intent, make sure you're really understanding. And then say, you know, if you are disappointed, don't hide. say, you know, gosh, I'm really disappointed. I know this was last minute. Gosh, I would have really appreciated knowing sooner. And mm -hmm. here's why, but you know, without making anyone bad or wrong, but not keeping it inside. And again, you can put it out there in a skillful in an open-hearted way. And that's your job. If they take it or don't take it, you know, you can't control that. Um, but don't drive yourself crazy and kind of submerge it. Um, and just kind of transparency, I think, is your friend. So how's that landing for you? It's it's landing well. I think I, I the, for me personally, I'm still thinking about the first part, which is I think I just really struggle to separate out their own, like why they might be, like I can put myself in their shoes, but I just keep coming back to like, it just feels disrespectful <laughs> to me uh, and to other people, right? Who they're bailing on in terms of like our time. And I just, I still, I, I have a hard time getting over that. Well, I love that you brought that up. So I think that's worth bringing up if it's a repeat thing saying, hey, um, 
uh, Kevin, you know, one thing I just want to chat with you about, and I value you as a friend, right? You honor the person and say, this has happened. And, you know, I know that you don't mean ill, but I just have to be open for me. Respect is blah, 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 whatever it is. And I just want to share that with you. And, um, you know, if I could help you, you know, I'd love for us to have a relationship where I feel respected and that you feel respected by me. And, you know, if we can talk about that, I would, I would warmly welcome that. So you can put that okay, I'm gonna be, I'm going to be listening back to this podcast and then writing all of that <laughs> down so I can go to my friends next week. Thank you. I, you're very welcome. Truly. I'm here for you. I am here for you. So uh, I'll write it down and I'll send it to you. Um, okay. We're going to do a wrap here really quick. Um, one thing, one thing you are absolutely most proud of. I'm most proud of taking the leap and starting my, my own small business. It's amazing. And then we've talked about a lot. And as you listen to yourself talking about your life, Kason, what's the top takeaway from our chat? I would urge everyone to, when they think they can't do something, to re-examine that, uh, to re-examine that thought. I love it. I love it. And um, you've just been so like amazing. What was it like for you to share your journey today? Gosh, I feel like I could have, we could have chatted for hours more. And I, there's so much that I wanted to ask your advice on that I didn't even get to. So maybe next time, um, maybe next time. Yeah, for sure. I would warmly, warmly, warmly welcome that. Uh, I have the biggest smile, if you can only imagine. I just thank you for shining so, so brightly in the world. You are an explorer extraordinaire, uh, an inspiration, Kason, for all to dream big and be their true selves. Uh, you're a role model for all ages. Um, so I'm thanking you for being part of the solution. If I can be helpful in any way, uh, please let me know. I'm cheering for you. Uh, take good care, my friend. Thank you, Molly, and you as well. Oh, my gosh, folks. Can you imagine such an amazing human being in the world and just the very beginning of an even more amazing impact. So let me wrap my, my thought for the week, twofold uh, courtesy of Kaysen. It's all mental and give yourself permission to adjust your definition of success. And that's a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Kaysen's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? 
Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 